morning. So good to see everybody on this chilly Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Luke chapter 2 today. We are now in that time of the year that many Christian denominations observe called Advent. It's a time of year that According to those who, who follow it pretty closely and, and, and practice it every year, it, it begins the fourth Sunday before Christmas and ends on Christmas Eve. The word Advent actually means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And during those four weeks, those who observe it use Advent as a time to, to just kind of prepare themselves for Christmas in a spiritual sense. But we don't observe Advent as religiously as as some do, but I do believe there are some good things to it, some things that we can take from it. I mean, it is good to be intentional about focusing our hearts and our minds on what Christmas is really all about, because we all know how easy it is to lose sight of it during the hustle and bustle of everything and the way our culture has has kind of turned the season into. Uh, we tend to get caught up in all the commercialism and consumerism and busyness and stress that the Christmas season has turned into. And so we need a time where we can just put all that aside and focus on what matters most, which is Jesus. And so for the next two weeks, I'm going to be bringing messages that do just that leading up to our Christmas service that Danny was talking about on the 23rd. Um, this time of year, of course, is a very joyous time for many people. A lot of you would probably say it's your most favorite time of the year, but it can also produce some attitudes and feelings that are not of God at all. And for many of us, it's one of the most stressful times of the year because there are things like the expectations many of us feel we have to look up to, whether it's buying a, a particular gift that someone is going to like or decorating our houses just right that, that have to keep up with either our, our neighborhood or, or, or other people that are into doing all that and the expectations that we have to live up to if we're having to host our families or other uh, type of get together, and then there's the stress that comes with fighting the large crowds and in in the malls and the stores and the traffic and and then the stress of just trying to figure out how all this gift buying is going to fit into your budget. And there's some among us that just don't look forward to this time of year at all. For them, it's more than just a time of of stress. It's a time that brings great sadness because it just reminds them of a great loss or the loneliness that they're um, going through in life. And so as much as this time of year brings so many good feelings to so many people, it can also be a time that brings some not so good things as well. And so my goal over these next few weeks is to provide a remedy to those not so good things by pointing us to the attributes of God that he reveals to us through the Christmas story. I'm hoping that that what we will see will bring uh, peace to the stress and comfort and hope to the sadness and, and even a little humility to remedy the greed and self-centeredness that tends to rise up in a lot of us during this time as well by focusing our attention on what matters most. It's like you've often heard me say, when we see God for who he truly is, it, it changes things. 
It absolutely changes everything. And God wants to make himself known to us. And there are some attributes about himself that that he has revealed through the events surrounding the birth of his son. And what I'm going to point us to today is something about God that I believe is one of the biggest and most effective uh, antidotes to stress that there is. We're going to see it in Luke chapter 2. Beginning to verse 1, let's all stand together this morning in honor of God's word as we read from verse 1 down through verse 5. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Let's pray. God, I pray right now, by your great and holy spirit, you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, through your word, in ways that some of us have never seen before. And others of us just need to be reminded of again, Lord. God, you are so good. I pray, Lord, today when we walk out of here, we would be more in love with you. We would be more in awe of you than we were when we came in here, God. Lord, let your will be done this morning among us. In Jesus' name, amen. What I believe to be one of the most profound statements of God's power and sovereignty in all of the Bible is right here in Luke 2, verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. That's all it says, but that one sentence is so profound, and most of us have probably never thought of that verse being that important at all. I mean, we probably saw it as serving for nothing more than just kind of giving a historical background to what's going on here. But when we take a closer look at what it really means, we see God revealing an attribute about himself that cannot be ignored. Caesar Augustus was one of the best emperors that Rome had ever had in terms of their size and strength. His reign was sandwiched right in between Rome's most famous emperor, Julius Caesar, and its most infamous, Nero. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar who had named Augustus his successor. And uh, when Julius Caesar was famously assassinated, e tu brute, Augustus rose to power. His rival to the throne was a man named Mark Antony, whom you probably remember learning about through your school history classes. He uh, was the one who fell in love and had a romantic affair with um, Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. Um, And as a gesture towards peace, Augustus gave Antony rule of part of the empire. But when he and Cleopatra joined forces and tried to overthrow Augustus, they were roundly defeated. And so Augustus consolidated his rule over the entire kingdom. 
And so that just kind of puts the birth of Jesus into a historical context. I, I like to know some of the other events that were going on in the world during the time of some of the things we read in Scripture. But during the reign of Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire doubled in size. It stretched all the way from England to India. It was the known world at that time, which is why the text says that the census was taken of all the inhabited earth. Well, it wasn't literally the entire globe, but um, that's how the Roman Empire was viewed at that time. In all of history prior, there had never been a kingdom, been an empire as big, as powerful, and as formidable as Rome was under the rule of Caesar Augustus. He wasn't just seen as ruler of the whole world because Roman emperors were uh, admired and worshipped as gods. And so needless to say, Caesar Augustus was arguably one of the most powerful men that had ever existed in all of history. He didn't just have the greatest political and military power, but was also believed to have divine power as well. And so every human being under his rule at that time was at the complete mercy of his decrees, his decisions, his desires. He had absolute sovereign command, control, and rule over the known world, or so it seemed. You compare and contrast his status and his stature with the other characters in the text. You have Joseph, an unremarkable Carpenter, whose influence probably didn't go much further than his own shadow. And Mary, a young Jewish girl who is in a scandalous situation, being pregnant and not being married. Two unimportant, insignificant people living in this remote part of the vast Roman Empire. You think Caesar Augustus knew anything about Mary and Joseph? Of course not. I mean, they didn't even exist in his mind. He was, they were so far away from anything that he was even remotely concerned about that he didn't even know they existed. The most powerful and important man on earth was not even in the slightest bit aware that the most important and powerful event in all of history was about to be set in motion because Mary had in her womb She was carrying the hope of the world, God in the flesh, whom the prophets foretold would be born in a tiny little insignificant town called Bethlehem. God had a plan to fix mankind's greatest problem, which was its separation from him because of sin. But in order for God's plan to succeed, the Savior of the world had to come at exactly the right time in exactly the right place. But the problem is Joseph and Mary aren't living in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth, which was about 70 miles to the north. Now, 70 miles to us today is not that big of a deal at all. That's roughly from here to Nacogdoches. I mean, we could travel there in an hour, but 70 miles back then in that terrain was quite a trip. And that was just 70 miles as a crow flies, just a a straight line from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In order for Mary and Joseph to get there, they'd have to go around Samaria, over up and down hilly terrain, which would have been quite a bit further than just 70 miles. And so historians have calculated that it would have taken them at the very least four days, walking a full eight hours a day 
to get there. And so for Joseph and Mary to even want to go to Bethlehem, it would have had to have been a very urgent reason for them to go, especially with Mary being pregnant. Well, what kind of reason, what in the world would be urgent enough for them to make that trip at this time? Oh, maybe the decree of the most powerful man on earth. Maybe that's what it would take. If that happened, then they'd have no choice but to go, and that's exactly what did happen. Augustus Caesar decreed that a census would be taken, which meant that each head of the household had to be counted in that census at the place of their family, the place of their birth, which for Joseph just happened to be Bethlehem. Now, was this just a coincidence? That that just so happened to match Micah's prophecy that was spoken of about this 700 years before this? Could it be that Caesar actually knew of the prophecy and was so in tune with God and and wanted to see this prophecy being fulfilled that that he made this decision and so that it could happen? Of course not. Caesar was nothing but a, a complete pagan who worshiped many different false gods and had declared himself superior over all of them. And even if he had known about the Jewish religion, he would have just dismissed it as a bunch of primitive fairy tales then why did he decide to make this particular decree at that specific time? Because unbeknownst to him, the most powerful and sovereign ruler on planet earth was being influenced and controlled by someone more powerful and more sovereign than him. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Not wherever the king wishes, but wherever the Lord wishes. For the sake of two insignificant, lowly people that no one, uh, not many people knew outside of their own families, God turned the heart of the most powerful man on earth. Now think about this whole situation from Joseph and Mary's perspective. But before this decree even went out, they were dealing with a pretty stressful situation. An angel appeared to both of them, telling them that Mary was going to miraculously conceive a child. And it would be done by the Holy Spirit moving over her. And so they both knew how she was with a child, but no one else did. And so they had to endure and try to navigate through the scorn and the shame and the, the judgment of everyone around them. And they're in the middle of trying to do this and trying to figure out how they're going to work all this out when they find out that they've got to pack up and go to Bethlehem. And I can just imagine someone like Joseph because uh, the things that would have been going through in his mind because they things that probably would have been going through my mind. Things like, I can't believe that sorry emperor. Who does he think he is? Here I am about to have to support a wife and baby and I'm going to be out of work for at least two weeks having to go from here to Bethlehem and back. That emperor is so sorry. He doesn't care how his decisions affect anybody else at all. All he cares about is his stupid empire. And I could just hear all the bad-mouthing from everyone else that had been inconvenienced by this decision coming from an oversized government 1,400 miles away in Rome. You know, they might have even been 
blaming God a little bit or, or complaining to him. I know many of us would have been thinking like, God, how could you allow this to happen? I mean, you give us this, this big news and now this. Don't you see how difficult this is going to be for us? Can't you do something about this? Little did they know God was doing something about this. Because it was all his sovereign hand moving things around on their behalf. What they could not see at the time was that they were being included in the greatest event to occur in all of history. And God was working things out for that event to happen exactly the way that he planned it to happen. Joseph and Mary had no choice to go to Bethlehem because an emperor's decree could not be disobeyed or taken back. And the emperor's decree was decisive, but even more decisive than the decrees of an emperor are the decrees of God. And he decreed 700 years earlier that the Savior would come from the town of Bethlehem. And so all of God's creation had no choice but to line up in bay so that his decree would be fulfilled, even if his creation meant the most powerful pagan man on earth. Caesar Augustus just thought that he was God. He just thought that he had authority and the power to, uh, to manipulate events all over the world. What he didn't realize is that he had nothing without God's power allowing and enabling it. 33 years later, in John 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate, who's trying to decide his fate. And Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have authority to release you or crucify you? Jesus looked at him and he said, you would have no authority unless it was given you from above. And so now you see why Luke 2.1 is such a profound verse. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited land. It's profound because without that, Joseph and Mary would not have gone to Bethlehem. And without them going to Bethlehem, the prophecy of Micah would not have been fulfilled. Without the prophecy of Micah uh, being fulfilled, God's entire plan would have fallen apart and you and I would still be sitting here in a fallen state as Titus 3.3 3 says, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But because God turned the heart of Caesar as easy as turning channels of water in his own hand, a decree went out that sent Mary and Joseph to a stable where she gave birth to a savior who died on a cross to give us salvation and rose from the grave to give us life. And it was all because the most powerful man on earth, whom everyone else believed to be a God, was nothing more than a puppet in the hand of the God Almighty. So what does this mean for us today? How is this supposed to bring comfort to the sadness or peace from distress? Some of you might think, well, yeah, God did that for Mary and Joseph because they were pretty important. They may not have been important to all the people at that time, but 
They were obviously important to the whole story. I mean, Mary was carrying Jesus. It's easy to see God doing that for them, but that doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. Because if you belong to God by way of the blood of Jesus, I'm telling you right now, he is moving the hearts of kings and world events for you, just like he did for them. Now, look, ultimately, God didn't do it for Mary and Joseph. He did it for Jesus. He did it for the sake of a son, but Mary and Joseph were included in that because of their connection to him. He was with Joseph, and he was in Mary, literally. In John 14, 17, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, his spirit that he is going to send once he leaves. And he says, you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. In Colossians 1.27, Paul speaks of the great mystery which has been revealed to the Gentiles, which is you and me. The mystery which he says is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is still moving the hearts of kings and world events for the sake of his son who will come again and consummate history and restore all things to himself. And you and I get to be included in that just like Mary and Joseph because of our connection with him. He is with us and in us. Now, there's a lot of things in this world that we could be worried and fearful and stressed out about if we look at those things through natural eyes. We get upset and we complain and curse our government leaders for the decisions that they make in Washington and in Austin. And we fret over all the events that are going on in the world. We get depressed and frustrated about the things that go on in our individual lives. Everything from the loss of a loved one down to the holiday traffic. And through natural eyes, yeah, there are all causes for concern. But through eyes of faith, you and I can rest in the fact that a sovereign God is working all things for our good and his glory. A few weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 40 that echoed a lot of this. Verse 23 and 24 said, He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless, but he merely blows on them and they wither. Daniel 4.25 says, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And Ephesians 1.11 says, he works all things, all things after the counsel of his will, his will. For each one of us, God's ultimate purpose is to mold us into the image of the one whose spirit lives in us. To mold us more and more into the image of Christ. And everything he does and everything he allows on a daily basis, he is working those things to that end. The struggles that you're having in marriage, the problems that you're having with a child, The financial strain of your budget, your job, your health, everything from the decisions made in Washington, D.C. to the long line that you get stuck in in Walmart. 
God is at work in every one of those events in order to mold you more into the image of Christ and to fulfill his plan for all of his creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the climax of God's great story, but it wasn't the end of it. There are still things planned that haven't yet come about. And in order for them to come about exactly the way that God has planned, he is still moving hearts and events all over his planet. And because of the inclusive power of the blood of Jesus, you and I are included in that. You and I get to be part of the story. And when we realize that, and we accept it, and we trust the fact that God is sovereign, he is in control, he is wise, and he is good, then we have nothing to fear and nothing to allow anxiousness and worry and stress to consume us with. And maybe that really is the question that all boils down to. Do you believe he's good? Because if you believe he's good, then it's easier to trust him. It's hard to trust somebody if you don't really believe their intentions are truly good. But if you know he's in control and that he is good, you can trust him. You know, I like to use the analogy of the pixel that makes up so many pictures And you can take a digital picture of of a beautiful scene, these snow-covered mountains with a lake down in a valley and animals drinking from it down. You look at that and it's just breathtaking how beautiful it is. And you know that that whole picture is made up of thousands of teeny tiny little pixels. And if you were to look at that pixel up close, you'd be like, oh, that, that doesn't look very good. But yet you know that that one Not good looking, maybe an ugly pixel is needed in order to make the whole picture so beautiful. Mary and Joseph at the time, all they could see going on in their world was just one tiny pixel. This huge inconvenience of having to pack up and take this long, arduous journey to Bethlehem. But you and I now get to be on the other side of it and look at this big, beautiful picture that God has put together. And we know that that one little event is just a pixel. And you know why God has allowed us to see it from this perspective now? So that we can trust him with every little pixel that goes on in our life on a daily basis. I say, God, I, I see you did it then. I'm trusting that you're doing it now. I can't see the big picture. All I can see is one tiny piece of it. And I'm telling you right now, this tiny piece is not pretty. This tiny piece is actually ugly and it hurts. But I'm trusting because I know you are good that you are using this one little piece I can see to put together a beautiful picture. Luke 2.1 is a profound verse because it assures us that we can trust God with everything. So when the stress and the sadness that tends to come with the Christmas season tries to attach themselves to you, 
Just remember that you belong to an all-powerful, all-loving God who is in control and working on your behalf in every single detail of your life. He has made a decree over your life through the blood of his son, and his decrees cannot be broken or taken back. Let's pray. God, you are good. And Lord, I just confess right now that so many times we question your goodness. And we look at things in, in the tiny micro vision that we have of them and say, well, if you allow this kind of thing to happen, that that means you must not be good. But Lord, we are so wrong when we define your goodness by our own definition we define your goodness just by individual circumstances Lord we know you're good because your word says you are we know you're good because we see how you work we see what you have given us by coming to earth and putting on flesh and dying in our place Lord how can we ever question your goodness when we look at the cross Give us, Lord, and Lord, I pray that we, you would allow us to see just how good you really are so that we'd be able to better trust you in everything that comes at us. And God, I pray for those in here right now who, who came in here, Lord, and even the, the side of Christmas decorations just causes these horrible feelings to begin to rise up in them, whether it is sadness or depression or, or whatever, God. And I pray that you would just minister to them right now, Lord, and, and bring hope to that, bring comfort to that pain. Lord, would you lift their spirits up, knowing that they belong to you and what that really means. Lord, I pray for those that are going through a a difficult marriage, a problem with their child, or financial trouble, whatever it is, Lord, that they just be able to stop right now and say, God, I'm trusting that you are using this to mold me into the man or woman that you created me to be, to mold me more into the image of your son. And Lord, they just submit to that and allow you to do your will in their life. We thank you for revealing your sovereignty, your power through your word this morning. And God, I pray that it is something that we would truly believe and learn to trust every day of our lives. Lord, we look forward to that day when you return again and our trust is no longer needed. Because the substance is standing right there in front of us. Lord, we love you so much. Holy Spirit, would you come and just have your way now among us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.